source where any will is free with the purchase of another will of equal or greater value. My name's Nathan, your most lucid host. My name's Andy, your most predetermined host. And I'm Pat, your most Leibnizzi host. Great. And uh, we've got a very special uh, topic today, but um, we're, we're going <laughs> to hop into... Is it is it special? It's very special. Like, it's it's yeah. deep in the human experience. That's pretty special. Yeah, I think I'm it's beaten. I get deep in your mom's human experience. First of all, Mrs. Nash is a saint. <laughs> <laughs> but first of all, how are you guys doing this week? I am okay. Um, I had a a little moment this week. Where, boy, man, do I ever miss my family right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I So, my nephew, my newest nephew, Milo, is uh, about six months old now. And I keep on getting pictures and stuff. And, you know, when they go from that age where their head is just like a big wobbly mess that you have to hold up all the time. To the point where they can, like actually like hold it up and get a little bit of strength um he's like bouncing in one of those uh bouncy chairs now he can play with toys a little bit it's just like it's rough just uh you i i feel like i'm i'm watching them from a distance through like a cardboard tube or something uh-huh. where i just see a little like snippets of their life and you know it is what it is i I'll deal with it, but it it does very much suck. Yeah, yeah, that does suck. Well, if there's if there's any hope, we are maybe hopefully close to the end. Crossing our fingers, so uh, hopefully, hopefully over soon. Fauci, I believe it was, was um, saying that we can reasonably expect to have a relatively normal summer. Nice. So that is good. Yeah, so, I mean, with God willing, with any luck at all, fingers crossed, maybe, hopefully, we are very close to the end and won't have to quarantine for the rest of our lives. So that's something to look forward to. How's your week been, Andy? So, since we did the episode on being vegan, I have been working towards um, trying to reduce significantly like almost eliminate how much meat i'm eating i'm not going vegan full full you know full on i just it's just not practical for me along you know with with caitlin and you know she's not (laughs) she's still doing normal whatever eating but i have been really working on drastically reducing my meat intake Mm -hmm. and good for you it's been it's been good um some limited success simply because times are tough and, um, you know, not to peek behind the curtain too much, but we, throughout the whole pandemic, we've been making use of food pantries in the area because both of us have had a tough time with employment during the pandemic. And so they give us what they give us and we eat it. So to a certain extent, it's, I don't want to say it's unavoidable because meat freezes and I could just leave it there for Caitlin, but like, we I'm not willing to spend the extra money to go to the store and get a bunch of tofu and stuff to 
replace protein. Right. So it's it hasn't been a perfect, you know, flawless transition, but throughout the course of this year, I'm moving in that direction. And I'm pretty pleased, you know, I've been able to keep off some weight without having to work as hard and exercise as hard. The downside is I have definitely been more gassy than I was in the first place, which was pretty f- gassy. So that's an issue. <laughs> but um, we got an air fryer as a Christmas gift, uh, the, the Ninja Foodie air fryer thing, yeah. toaster oven air fryer. So Those things are great. Oh, my God. It's amazing. It's the, Do you have one? Yes. I actually got Lexi. <laughs> Lexi uses hers so much as a vegan. Uh, their whole family does use theirs so much. We got their old one, like because they had to be, they had to buy a bigger one because they used it so much. <laughs> so we got the old one. That's so great. Yeah, it's what, it's what does an air fryer do? Like it, that's different from yeah, like it a fries frying stuff, pan. but without all the oil. Right. You have a huh. well. <laughs> you have a so you put it on a uh, you put your food on like a grate, and there's superheated air that flows like over and under the stuff that cooks it. It's basically like a like a turbo convection oven. Yeah. That's yeah, I think that's a pretty good thing. And do you have to you don't have to like bread it or egg it or you anything can. or add flour? You could throw you could throw pretty much anything in there. You could if you wanted. I have made a ton of french fries first of all. Nice. <laughs> uh, that's always good for the diet. Less, less greasy, greasy, less greasy French fries. I mean, that's amazing. It's a vegetable. <laughs> it is, um, and they, and it does make the world's best tater tots too. Oh yeah, I haven't tried the tots yet. Although I have a couple oh. recipes that I've been wanting to try out. The trick is, the trick is, you're going to want to pile them up, which is against you. You want to like try and have an even layer and like create some space in between them. The other thing that I've made that in particular that I was especially proud of, and <laughs> this is going to kind of blow up my vegetarianism comment earlier, but um, I made this like Peruvian fried chicken that I found a recipe for, and it was banging. It was real good. Sounds really good. So, yeah, I mean, that has made it easy to eat more vegetables. Uh, it's been good. It's been good. I've been trying to just eat not necessarily healthier, but with less meat in my diet. That's great. Nice. I, I wish I could say the same. That's that's actually a pretty nice accomplishment. I have been participating in an art contest, which has been oh yeah a, a whole bunch of fun. And it's been helping me like feel out and fine-tune my uh, skills and like work on my sketching skills a bit. And so like it's been a t- it's been a blast. I've had some really funny reactions to some of them so like i made a uh i made a lando hippo that we can we can put in the doobly-doo i made uh <laughs> there's a uh meme it's uh pepe pinkie pie that i made that is thoroughly horrifying oh yes and i've gotten <laughs> i've gotten some very some very satisfying reactions I did find the perfect gift to respond to uh, that picture with. Yeah, the uh, the brony. Oh, oh, it's rough. <laughs> but we're not talking about bronies today. And any of our brony listeners out there, we have nothing but respect and support for your dirty, dirty habits. <laughs> but today, uh, so we're talking about <laughs> perfect, philosophy. 
Perfectly smooth transition there. Great yeah, job, Pat. Yeah, no, completely <laughs> abrupt transition to get us back on track. So today we're talking about philosophy, and this is a subject in philosophy. Uh, I, I really like it because sort of everyone is an expert and no one is an expert. In, in a lot of ph- philosophical subjects, like, you know, it, you think oh, this would probably help if I had a doctorate or if I had a, you know, a master's or had read a bunch of authors. And that would probably help you describe with better terms or give better examples to your thoughts. But it wouldn't necessarily help you understand uh, any better than everyone because everyone is an expert in their own I, consciousness. I, I was just, I mean, the only pushback I'd give to that is I think, you know, reading the authors, reading some of these philosophers and what they have to say can definitely help you understand and think about these things a little easier. I, I think taking a course on it yeah, is certainly. kind of why bother. Just just go pick up the book from the library or an audio book or something and hear what these people have to say and then just think about what you have you know, what do you, what do you think about that? How do you react to that? Does that feel, does it ring true to you or not? So everyone, everyone is sort of a, uh, an expert in their own subjective experience mm-hmm. is, is kind of my point. Um, mm-hmm. so we've got two actually kind of like possibly related, but not necessarily related topics, consciousness and free will out of all the matter in the universe Animal brains, and particularly human brains, seem to have, like, some unique characteristics that make them different from everything else that we've ever found in the universe. So far. Right. So far. But, like, what's actually going on there? Can I just really quickly point out the irony of you talking about how, you know, you can rely on your own subjective experience to think about these matters... And then to call into question the very existence of or, or wondering about what is consciousness in the first place. I mean, it's just a kind of a funny juxtaposition. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, and it might not even be real. So one of the points I was going to bring up later, but we can't actually prove that anyone else experiences consciousness in the same way that we do. And we can't necessarily assume that our memory of being conscious in the past is reliable. The only thing that we can definitely prove is that in in the present, you yourself, right now, are conscious. And even that's a little... Yeah, prove it. <laughs> so, is there a definition of consciousness we should be working with here? Yeah. Is it just, like, being aware of your surroundings? So I've got the the Webster's right here. It's uh, the state of being awake and aware of one's surroundings. Um, I, that was pretty good. I got pretty close to that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's going to be the smartest thing I say the entire episode. Uh, the the awareness or perception of something by a person, or the fact of awareness by the mind of itself and the world. And so I think that that is useful. I think that that's a good jumping off point. But here's here's the problem with that. Whenever you start saying that consciousness is a noun, it's a thing, we can find it somewhere, it starts disappearing from wherever you go to look for it. And the example that I'll give for that is 
in neurology, we've gotten pretty good at like looking at the individual neurons and the chemicals and electrical signals that go in between them. We can see the structure, we can see the molecules that make up the neuron and, and the whole network. But if you want to find, all right, here is the consciousness center of the brain, there's nothing that's anything like that. Our study of neurology has brought us not really closer to knowing what consciousness is. And if anything, it seems to maybe not be a physical thing that you can find, like, okay, here it is, right here. Um, I mean, you know, it raises the questions about can consciousness be replicated um, artificially? You know, can can we create artificial right. intelligence yeah. or can we um, bring, you know, a brain to life in a jar or, can, you know, like in Futurama, um, <laughs> can what what's necessary to reach and achieve consciousness? I mean, I will argue in Futurama, that's a whole head. You've got eyeballs, you got ears, true. you got a nose, mouth. That's like all of the senses. That is true. That's, that's true. So so I think that there is a, a valid point that's there, is that part of how we define consciousness is based on input from the rest of the world. You could be like, you know, if you're awake, you're not asleep, but your your eyes are closed, like maybe you have like something covering your ears so that you're not getting any sound if you're not getting any input from the rest of the universe at all, we would still say that you can be conscious. I think even even more than that, like there are those sensory deprivation chambers where you basically float in water in complete darkness and silence. And yeah, yeah, you still smell like the the damp of the air and you still feel the water around your body and everything, but But it is but it is part of the way that we define like consciousness in young children or consciousness in animals. Um there's a thing that's called object permanence. So like when you look in the mirror, if you see that there's an object that might be out of your sight somewhere else, or like identifying yourself, like knowing that that is you in the mirror. Uh, those are like a couple of tests that we use to see to what degree do we think that animals are conscious. And what we're testing is really like, do you create a mental model of the world that you assume to still exist when it's out of your senses? When you no longer detect it, do you think that the world is still there? And, like, young toddlers don't necessarily. Yeah, from, like, four to seven months, a baby's whole world is whatever it can see at the moment. It doesn't have... it. Like, so, if it can see its mom, that mom exists in the universe, and then as soon as she's out of its line of sight, it never she never existed. She never was anything. Sure, or when I buy a bag of salad and put it in the bottom drawer of the fridge and then promptly forget that it exists <laughs> yes yes that's exactly the same thing <laughs> um, um there are animals that that pass this test interestingly um i think it's octopi and uh certain species of ravens there are like cats and dogs that can pass this object permanence test so back check back check back check and welcome back to Fact Check. Object permanence means knowing that an object still exists even if it's hidden. 
It requires the ability to form a mental representation of the object. In babies, the concept of object permanence begins to develop as early as two to three months. Animals which have shown object permanence in tests so far include dogs, cats, non-human primates, well, I guess human ones too, but never mind about that, and some birds, including carrion crows, Eurasian jays, and magpies. If this is interesting to you, maybe check out the vegan episode again. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Back check, back check, back check. You know who I like to turn to on issues around sentience is the Oregon Supreme Court. And in 2016, <laughs> they had a case. <laughs> they had a case where. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that was yeah. a funny transition. Well done, sir. Yes. In 2016, they had a case where a dog was malnourished, and uh, the woman had been insisting that she had nourished the dog properly and stuff like that. And ultimately, the case came down to whether the dog was sentient or not. Whether, like, whether she had a responsibility wow. to keep the dog nourished to the level that the state thought because it did not have sentience, so what did it matter? And it turns out, dogs do have sentience. So thank you, Oregon Supreme Court and Oregon v. Newcomb from 2016. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, and so that is kind of a big deal. Like, we kind of think that, like, there's this unique human experience and we're the smartest things on the planet, which may well be true that we, you know, that we do have a lot going on, but it doesn't necessarily make us unique. There, there are other experiences that are going on and, uh, you know, they might not be as developed socially or they might not be able to go back and read ancient Greek philosophy, but they're still having an experience, and I guess that kind of ties into our vegan episode a little bit of the ethics of eating a sentient right. creature. Because pigs, pigs in particular, are very smart. I think, though, if we're going to do that, I mean, there is evidence out there, and I'll probably need to look it up for a fact check or, or at least a drop in the doobly doo. But um, there, there have been studies that show that, like, plants do experience pain. It's not like a tree is like internally screaming when you cut it down but but right. a tree but but plants respond to injury so if you chop at a tree it takes certain actions to shield itself or heal itself and it's not the right. same as human consciousness but it certainly flirts with that line and i think it's you know it's just it's just very interesting it's interesting because there's a diet called raw food diet where People don't eat anything that's been cooked at all. And I think the idea, I, I'm not 100% sure, we'll put in a fact check about the raw food diet. But I think the idea is to, like, not cause injury to the plant. But, like, really all you're doing is, like, chewing on a living thing at that point. Or recently murdered. Monsters. So, but I will, I will say, if we ethically uh, cut out any plants and or uh, animals out of our diets, uh, that's going to be a rough, rough uh, road to hoe moving forward for humans. When it comes to consciousness, and, and to a certain extent, we're also dealing with a, a field of study called epi uh, epistemology. Am I, do I have the right word? Yeah, epistemology, yep. 
I don't remember what that means, but yeah. <laughs> I can I can also confirm that that is in fact a word. Yeah, it is indeed a word, epistemology, and uh, here is what the word means. Um, the theory of knowledge, especially with regards to its methods, validity, and scope. Epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. So, or in like layman's terms, epistemology is how do you know that you know what you think you know? Which is maybe actually more confusing you know, right. than the original. But like, it's it's thinking about thinking. <laughs> so um, if I say, well, sure. I know that I am sitting in a chair in front of a computer in my house. How do I know that? How do I know that those those things are true versus just my brain telling me that that is true? You know, it's sort of like the Matrix thing. How do I know I'm not sitting in, like, a pod having these ideas injected into my head? Or how do I know that my head isn't just a non-physical entity in space that's creating this... The the the, the, the simulation? Um, yes, a simulation. So there's this... There's this guy, I heard, um, I cannot think of his name. I'll look it up for, for the doobly-doo or something, but... There's this um, author and, and scientist who studies this sort of stuff, um, and I heard him on this podcast with Sam Harris. Basically, the, his idea was, you know, our experience of reality is sort of like a like a virtual reality computer interface. Like, when you go in to play a video game, you're using the mouse and the, the keyboard. When you're using a computer, it's Forget a... Forget playing a video game, when you type an email to somebody, you're using this keyboard to create like, but what's really going on is all these zeros and ones and, and this digital binary code being passed along electronic signals. So it would be very, 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 very hard to write an email using just like the zeros and ones. A complicated one anyway. I think it could do high. So we have this keyboard here to make that process way more under, understandable. But when I press the F key and an F appears on the screen, it's not as simple as this key creates the F on the screen. There's so much behind the curtain that I don't have a freaking clue about. And the idea is like that sort of our senses are like the keyboard and the mouse. Our eyes and our mouth are are just our ways of interacting with the world to make it sort of the the the, the user interface. But what's going on in, in terms of consciousness is way more complicated and might be very, very different from what we think. Right, and that is still, like, that keyboard is still a way of encapsulating us as a species having come up with verbal language and then turning that verbal language into a written language and then coming up with symbols to go ahead and figure out how to form different words and phrases and things like that. And then we have books and then typewriter, you, you know, like it's, there, mm -hmm. it's so complicated. The, the process that even just got us to the point where we needed a keyboard to be able to get that stuff out. Yeah. From an evolutionary standpoint, the way that the, like evolution works and the natural selection and, and like the reward system, right. Is, if you can do these things effectively, you know, eat, reproduce, etc., then whatever traits you have get get passed on better. And so it doesn't necessarily reward accuracy. Like if your eyes can detect threats really well, 
it doesn't necessarily matter that they often mistake a non-threat for a threat because you are still preserved better than someone whose eyes don't detect threats very well. And so the accuracy isn't really rewarded. Right. Right. But the mental modeling is. Like, if you can look at a pattern and say, like, oh, that pattern is a tiger's face that is, like, about to eat me, uh-huh. that that gets rewarded, whereas somebody who, like, oh, that's just a bunch of stripes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Right. I, I do like the idea of linking consciousness to evolution, though. The idea that consciousness would be something that would help us achieve whatever goal. Like, it's interesting to think of, and, and you sort of, like, barely, uh, uh, like, passed by it uh, early in the episode, Pat. But the idea of looking at the brain as matter and how that matter operates completely differently than any other matter in the universe. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite memes that I've seen that I just I just love to death is talking about how basically like we are brain matter, gray matter that sends electrical signals to itself, covered in a protective bone armor that is operated by a meat mechanoid mechanism. Like piloting a meat mechanism. Yeah. 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 So like <laughs> all we really are is these electrical signals like our whole perception of consciousness and personality and everything is it boils down to just some little electrical signals in gray matter and then that is just protected by bone and meat right and so so this is going to come up in the discussion of free will but i did want to expand on that a little bit so what i mean by brains are different from all of the rest of the matter in the universe is that um causality or what you would call determinism, it seems to be the rule of the land. Um, every action has an equal but opposite reaction. When you look at physics, when you look at chemistry, like nothing ever gets lost. You might have like something dissipated in heat. You might have like something converted from chemical energy to physical energy. But everything has like an exact cause and an exact effect and like there's really nothing in the universe that really breaks that chain of causality which means that like you know if our physics was good enough if our understanding of the world and our modeling was good enough that you could take everything that like all of the initial conditions of the universe and you could predict us all the way up to this exact moment and then also actually extremely accurately predict the future now the thing that throws a wrench in that that makes causality a little bit more questionable is like active minds we we have little events that are going on that are largely mysterious going on inside gray matter that you can make a decision that no longer has the same sort of causality as the rest of the universe. And then I'll, I'll preface that whole statement with maybe, (laughs) maybe you can, (laughs) you can make decisions that, that violate causality. I just want to push back against the like equating determinism and causality those are two very different things causality is you know 
this event causes that event, or, or really, these events cause these events, because it's not right. one event causes one thing, it's not right. a single cause. You know, causality is fine, because I think it's pretty, I, I think it's hard to argue that, that so, these events cause those events, that that's not true, it's hard to argue against that. But determinism, arguing that all of those events are predetermined and and fated to happen, I think is a totally different right, notion. That there's that there's no chance. Right. Okay. I think because because one of those pre, you know predeterminism negates free will, whereas causality does not negate free will. It incorporates free will. We make these choices, and as a result, these things happen. But if we had chosen these, made these other choices, a different set of effects would be caused. So. Right. So let me let me back up and make that case a little stronger then. Uh, so determinism, yes, like being that uh, nothing in the universe happens to chance. Nobody ever makes any choices. The the way that the world unfolds and we experience it unfolding is the only way that that could ever happen, that nobody ever makes any meaningful choices and that we're kind of observing the universe play itself out. Yeah, we're we're actors with a script. Yeah, like you can. That doesn't mean that you can't um, you can't make an action. It just means that you can't make an action that you weren't always going to make. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the case for this is that. Um, you know, everywhere that we look in the universe, if you see like the the speed that an uh, an object is rotating around a star, and you know that speed, like you can predict when that orbit will decay over, you know, hundreds of millions of years or billions of years, like how long it'll take that orbit to decay. We know, like, with some degree of accuracy, we know, like when something starts with a certain inertia, when something has a certain momentum, like how long it will take to come to rest, uh, we can tell, like, in chemistry, if you start with a certain amount of energy, you're going to wind up with that same amount of energy, like some of it released as heat, some of it stored chemically, or, um, you know, it in, in general, like, we have... We have physics and mathematics that have a pretty good uh, prediction power over the rest of the universe. And one of the fundamental principles is that if you make an experiment with the same initial conditions, you will always get that same result. And that's generally what we have found with physics, with chemistry... If you can get the initial conditions down to something that you can control very well, you you make the assumption that you get uh, you get similar results starting with the same initial conditions. And if you can't do that, then you've actually found a problem. If you can't do that, then you found a problem with replicability, and your whole findings are thrown right. into doubt. Well, yeah, or, or at least there you are. Not made aware that there's some sort of missing factor in your calculations. Right. Maybe you didn't control the initial conditions well enough. But th this hard determinism 
is like a through line through all of the science the sciences it's it's basically like our thesis to say that we have science is that you can conduct these experiments and as long as you start with the initial conditions that you'll get the same result this time and so that's why it's so weird that we don't think that brains act the same way now i'll i'll make the case this might be kind of a weak case but i'll make the case that i think that maybe brains do act in the same way so you are the product of your environment you're the product of your genetics you're a product of all of the experiences that you've ever had and those experiences can lead you to have certain dispositions certain temperaments certain preferences and so when you go to make a decision you aren't rolling a die to make that decision which is kind of a funny it's a funny thing to say that that rolling a die is random because um if you could say like with perfect accuracy like the speed and the angle and the surface that you're throwing a die onto a die would not break this determinism either right we can we consider die to be random because we don't know those right. conditions and we can't replicate them exactly i mean the motion of of rolling the die is uh, no matter how close you th to the same motion you are are going every time it's not exactly the same you aren't holding the die in exactly the same way when you release it and so on so like it's the fault of, or the, the cause of the so-called randomness, I use air quotes, and of course the audience can't hear those, um, the so-called randomness of rolling a die is really more of a human error of you can't roll it the exact same way every time, physically. Right, and we, so we call that good enough, right? We, we just consider like, ah, eh, that's random enough. Like, that's close <laughs> enough yeah. to random. Um, but, like, I would posit that... If you go out today and you say, like, okay, I just learned about all this free will determinism stuff. You know what I want to do? I want to do something that I was completely not planning to do. I want to do something that completely bucks this whole my fate is chosen thing. And I'm going to start a totally new line of causality that never existed before. And just forge my way into the universe. Well, I mean, guess what? You might have been influenced by this very conversation. You know, there, there's nothing that you make in your decisions of your everyday life that is not flavored by your preferences, your dispositions. Like, maybe I like peanut butter, so what do I want for lunch today? I decide to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Right. You know, there's there's no decisions that you're ever going to make that are completely free of these predispositions. Sure. So I think um, the way to frame or a way to frame what you're talking about in a way that a lot of people can relate to and probably have had lengthy conversations about is nature versus nurture. Um, mm -hmm. Are you and it's not entirely that way, but a lot of people are familiar with that debate over whether you are, say, genetically predetermined to have a certain type of personality or certain types of, you know, whatever. Um, nature versus nurture argument is a really big thing in a lot of, in like, medical arenas for obvious reasons. They want to know what they can 
fix and prevent and so on. But even just from a personality standpoint, you have a genetic code that determines certain things to a certain extent, like your effectiveness at uh, producing certain hormones like um, dopamine and serotonin and things like that. Um, those that that has an effect on your personality, but also there's things you can do or pills you can take that change that, that alter that. Or, and, and there's also just habits you can form and principles you can be raised on that have an effect on that. So there's a really in, it's, it's a fascinating study of what forms your personality. What are the things that lead to you making certain right. decisions or at least thinking you're making decisions right and there's tons and tons of studies some of the most interesting studies in that vein to me anyway are the twin studies uh there's lots and lots of of studies done on identical twins because you that's how you can control one of those variables well both of those variables and i and i love that but if you if you chop that down if you say this part was hereditary and this part was environmental. After you've chopped it up, what is left that is completely uniquely you? That's not environmental. It's not hereditary. It's I chose this thing because I wanted to for no other reason. Yeah, but why did you want to? That's the yeah, thing. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so I think to answer your question of like what makes this uniquely you is all of it. Um the combination of Yeah. The this is the the genes I was born with and these are the circumstances that I've lived through and together no one has that unique combination of genes and experience right. who like where did you grow up how did you grow up who did you interact with how did they grow up who did they interact with to give them their preferences that influenced your preferences ultimately you know like it's it's like we are playing a big game of dominoes and the like first domino was flicked at the big bang before that you know like it's it just depends on like it, there's so many different variables that you that you can't predict and i think uh, that's kind of the point, right? Right. This is where causality and predictability veer away from predeterminism. It, you know, you are still making, in theory, the, according to the sort of the causality theory, like you are still making a choice. That choice is predictable, but you're the one who's making it. Right. And it, it's not predetermined. It's just right. predictable. Right. So, So how I would reinforce that would say like, could you have chosen something else? Like, I chose peanut butter and jelly, and I had, you know, I had lunch meat and beef stew and a salad, and I could have made any of those decisions. But once it, once it gets locked into the past, like, now that time has passed, I no longer can influence that decision, but now it really only could have happened one way. So is the present fundamentally different from the past in that way that I could have chosen something else? Something that's in the present or in the future, can I really have made more than one decision? And is it meaningful to talk about it in that way even, um, to say that you could make more than one decision if it winds up eventually in the past where you could only have made the one decision that you did. 
Does that well, make any sense? Yeah, and I, I mean, personally, my, my take on it, for whatever it's worth, yeah, um, go for it. is is just that, yeah, you know, yes, you could have made another decision, but you wouldn't have. Hmm. If that right. makes sense. Like, there's a, a fine line between what you, the, the options actually available to you and the path that you are, like, the odds that you're going to, of what you're going to choose. And maybe you might have, you know, there were lots of different options available to you for lunch, but because of who you are and the tastes that you have developed over your 30-some years and what your week and day has been leading up to the lunch, putting you in a certain, like, emotional... Like, if we can... We could pick apart your your life and probably accurately predict every choice that you make if we are detailed enough in our analysis. But that doesn't take away from your agency in making that decision. You made that decision, but if we really drilled down far enough, we absolutely could have predicted that you would make that exact decision. Maybe. 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 Isn't <laughs> one of these possibilities horribly, crushingly depressing? You know, like... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank isn't, you. <laughs> isn't one of these options, like, if you can predict every action I make for the rest of my life, and I make that action, okay. I mean, that's that's weird, but that's okay. But if I have no choice, if I'm just on rails, I have no choice to make every, but to make every action that I make in my life, that's awful. What's the point? Do you do you sit down and not do anything else right. ever again? Ah, what, yeah. what's the point? But weren't you determined to sit down and do anything? So it's not that bad of a thing, unless right? the universe determined that you were going to find out that you didn't have any choice and told you to sit down. <laughs> so I, I have I have another disturbing wrinkle for this that I think might be even even a bigger deal. When you talk about, like, criminal responsibility, when you talk about, or civil responsibility, or the responsibility for war crimes, the implication of any kind of moral responsibility is that you were making choices to wind up there. If you never make meaningful choices, and we find out that scientifically, like, nobody ever makes any kind of choices, that the universe is just playing itself out, what right do we have to go around punishing people for wrongdoing? Right. None of them are responsible for the thing that they did. We don't have any choice. This is one of, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but like even beyond like the legal code, it has very significant religious implications, I think. In religions that espouse predeterminism and also have... I, like a heaven and hell or, or some similar type of afterlife situation. Like, what the bleep is going on there? Oh, I was always going to murder this person, but I'm going to go to hell for it? That's bullshit. Well, what you're describing does actually very specifically exist in Christianity. It's yeah, like I know. It's super book, up. The book of life. Like, if you are written in the book of life, you were always written into the book of life. You might stumble upon it, you know, later in your life than earlier, but you had always been written in there. 
Yeah, I was trying to not necessarily turn this into a specifically me railing against Christianity, but yeah, no, that's but exactly enough, what I'm whatever. talking about. No, no, yeah. I just don't want to be like, I, this isn't the episode for that, <laughs> but <laughs> that, that episode is coming. But um, I just, sure. it's, it's a huge, huge problematic contradiction to me in from a, you know, because if you really believe that you are, um, that everything is predetermined, then why are you being punished for something that is that you had no, you know, no agency, no well, utility? Can I, over? can I also say, let me take that to the next step. What does it matter? You know, like if you get punished, mm. if you don't have any determinism over like how how you live your life or anything like that, or even what your potential afterlife looks like, what does it matter? We're we're not people at that point. We're just props who think they can think mm -hmm. right and so like if we're tortured for eternity who cares because we're just a rock we're we're just like that's insulting to rocks we're just an object so if that object if that object experiences some sort of like mental trauma or like physical experience that causes it pain who gives a shit? because it was never determined in the first place. It, it was never in charge of what it could do in the first place. So what does it matter? It's not punishment because it's just like you don't punish the blades of grass in your front yard when you mow your lawn. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up the word object because in a lot of philosophy texts and stuff, a lot of these people talk about objectivity and subjectivity. And I just, for listeners' sake, I want to make a point here that we're we're not talking about it like in terms of like a social justice thing. It's it's very like the literal the the Eng like the way objects and subjects are referred to when you're talking about the English right. language. A subject is is something or someone that is performing a verb, and an object is someone or something that is having a verb performed on it. That's kind of an awkward way to say it, but it amuses me. Important part of that is. Well, it's all important, but um, the relevant part is, generally speaking, we experience our lives as the subject of our story. We are the ones who perform the actions on other people, and other people tend to just kind of become objects in our mind, not in a like derogatory sense, but just in a grammatical right. sense. I talk to you. Um, it's not we don't really think of it so much as like we have a conversation. We think about it in terms of what I myself am doing and who am I doing it with. And I personally, I always have a, have these like moments where I sort of blow my own mind every once in a while to remind myself that other, everyone else experiences their life as the subjects of their own stories as well. I'm an object in their story, just like they're an object right. in mine. And that like you, Pat, and you, Nathan, you guys have your own very, and again, in the grammatical sense, subjective experiences of the world. Right. And it's sometimes hard for me as one individual to contextualize that. It's, it's weird. It's a little bit out of the norm, I guess, for us to think about things that way. Yeah, there's, there's actually a word that's exactly for that it's not a word in the real word sense that you would find it in webster's or anything like that it's actually from the dictionary of obscure sorrows by john koenig so it's a completely uniquely made up 
term, but it's it's Sonder. S-O-N-D-E-R, Sonder. And Sonder is the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherited craziness, an epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk. And it's not the most concise definition, but I I stumbled across this at one point, and um, I was just kind of struck by... Um, it's kind of like a beautiful feeling or like word to describe that feeling but it is interesting i like i like that i mean it's it's so hard to think of you know i think so much about myself and it's hard to imagine that to most people in the world i don't even exist as far as they're concerned let alone you know maybe i like the 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 what was the line about being in the background sipping coffee? Like that just, that kind of strikes me as like, yeah, to a bunch of people, even when I go out to a restaurant or something and there's someone else that like, they don't, I'm just some like background right, exactly. noise. To, to, and I would say like your word most is probably like, <laughs> it's, it's accurate. Right, exactly. Most. Like there are the vast, vast majority of people in the city that we live in. Could give less of a shit about <laughs> right. us. Like, you move out of that city or out of the country, like, it matters less and less and less. It's it's zero or approaching right. zero. There are, people, yeah. there are people on the planet who don't know that our city exists or that our, like, state exists for that matter. So the fact that we, we would uh, take up any amount of their uh, attention is interesting. I think one of this right, but they're all they're all conscious and they all have free will. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. I think the, without this concept, uh, certainly fiction would be a lot less interesting. <laughs> like so many writers delve into this stuff. There's this fairly terrible movie from the late '90s called Sliding Doors, which is basically about like what if Gwyneth Paltrow like caught a train or not. And it follows her to like her life in two different directions. Had she caught that train and like I think met like the love of her life or didn't, and like went off in another direction. And it is, I think it's one of those movies that I would suggest watching. Question mark. But like, it's here's the thing. Not a strong right. recommendation. What, like I think the concept is a lot more interesting than the product that came out of it. But that idea that uh, something that she did, I like there was something like that she did that like stopped her for like two seconds. And that two seconds was a difference between catching that train and not. And that's our entire lives all the time. All right. I'm going to hit you guys with panpsychism. So panpsychism is the concept that not only are like humans and animals and plants and fungi conscious, all the matter in the universe to lesser or greater degrees 
has some amount, some unit of consciousness. And that when you bring enough of them together, you get like a greater consciousness, like added together. Um, but like the pencil on your desk, the rock that's out in your yard, all have some unit of consciousness to them. I don't know about that because I can't disprove it. I'm a little skeptical. <laughs> a little? You're a little skeptical. That that your your rock in your yard is conscious to some degree? Yeah, I'm skeptical. I'm I'm I not I'm not I don't have a beef with your skepticism. I have a beef with your seemingly small amount of skepticism. I also have skepticism, but I have heaping truckloads of it. Right, but this is this is something that is like harder to prove or disprove than you might think because what it does is it posits that consciousness is not something that we could find physically like, oh, we cracked open the rock and there's its consciousness right there. Um, you're positing that there is a completely different realm of the mind that exists where these mental concepts actually do have interactions and, uh, you know, a, a meaning, a real meaning, um, but in the physical world, uh, their interaction, the, the mind interaction with the physical world is at, at, at least, um, you know, ethereal or maybe, you know, doesn't really interact at all. Yeah, no, I think we have consciousness because we have brains and I'll take my answer off the air. <laughs> you... <laughs> Fair enough. You think therefore yeah. you are. Um, how would how would uh, Descartes feel to know that there are people who exist but don't think? Ah, hmm. Millions of them. Seventy-five million of them. <laughs> hey, right here hey, in hey! That's not this episode. <laughs> Got them. <'em>. Um, <laughs> but so if I could take a moment to read off a few quotes that I think are relevant yeah, about I love free it. will. Um. So I'll start with a couple shorter ones, and then I have a long one that I'll end with, unless you think I should go in the other order. No, go for it. Okay. So first is a quote from Stephen Hawking, um, who most of the listeners probably recognize that name. He was a very smart scientist, but he was a physicist, not a philosopher. But this is, this is what he says. I've noticed even people who claim everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it, look before they cross the road. <laughs> I like that. That's good. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, another another good one um, from one of... I'm bringing him back into this conversation, Sam Harris. Uh, um, so he says, and this is kind of a weird quote, but I like it. Um so, well, there's a couple short ones about free will, but basically you can do what you decide to do, but you cannot decide what you will decide to do, hmm. which is sort of weird and hard to understand. But um, I feel like I can disprove that, but oh, yeah, yeah maybe not. Um, another one. Free will is an illusion. Our wills are simply not of our own making. Thoughts and intentions emerge from background causes of which we are unaware and over which we exert no conscious control. 
Yeah, but I think I think the first part of that statement negates the second part. If you don't know where uh, your frame of reference for how you make decisions comes from, how could you possibly know whether uh, whether you had control over those decisions or not? Like, I think that statement sort of negates itself. Like, stick it, sticking it in a black box doesn't mean that it's random. It just means right. that you don't know. Yeah. You know, to, free will being, like, the the full conscious control over the decisions you make would rely very directly on you knowing all of the uh, parameters from which you're making the decision and you don't. So it's not truly like free will. Now it's, uh, that's not, that's also not to say, I don't think that he is, um, he's not proposing predeterminism here either. He's, what he's saying is that there's sort of a, a marriage between the choices you make and the conditions that lead to those choices. And you are not fully aware of all of the conditions leading to your choices, but you are the one who makes the choice. You just, it's not as, it's not as free of a choice as you think. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And he elaborates a little bit more. I got this longer one that I'm going to read um, that I think kind of fleshes that thought out a little bit more. So, he says, we actually don't feel as free as we think we do. This relies on us not paying very close attention to what it's like to be us. If you pay attention, you can see that you no more author the next thing you think than the next thing I say. Thoughts simply appear in consciousness. What are you going to think next? What am I going to say next? I could suddenly start talking about why we don't eat owls. Why don't we eat owls? <laughs> they seem perfectly good. <laughs> okay, where did that come from? It came out of nowhere as far as you're concerned, but the same thing is happening in your own mind at this moment. You're trying to listen to me, but you also have a voice in your head that says things. Haven't you noticed? It says things that are completely unconstrained at times by the thing you're trying to focus on. I'm standing up here trying to reason with you, and you will think, he does look a little like Ben Stiller. Thoughts just emerge in consciousness. We are not authoring them. That would require that we think them before we think them. If you can't control your next thought and you don't know what it's going to be until it arises, where is your freedom of will? And just to tie that to something that I picked up in my years in, in AA, um, there's, a, there's a little saying, a motto, that you, you can't control your first thought. You can only control how you respond to that thought. And I think I think that that paints a really nice picture of kind of that marriage between free will and I don't want to use the word determinism, but free will and um less free will. <laughs> okay. No, that's not a thing. I don't know. Um no. Um I mean all right, fine. Um determinism. Uh, another quick <laughs> quote if I may that I just again. So um Relating this to, it's not actually going to be a quote. I'm just going to reference this concept um, that that our so-called, like our free will or whatever is like playing cards. You don't have any control over what cards you get dealt, but you have complete control over how you play them. Right. Yeah. Hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. But, I mean, the idea that, like, we don't have free will because our brain comes up with random stuff is... That's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, it's not nonsense. I mean, it's, it, I'm saying it's It might nonsense. not make sense to you. Right. 
It's nonsense because that it doesn't stop you from being able to make those choices. Like just because you have these chemicals in your brains or like because you are taking in information and your brain is is making observations at the time doesn't mean you don't have free will to make your own choices. It just means that you have a brain that takes in this data and processes it in a way that you don't like you you don't like have control over. No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> it should be. I no, I want to hear I want to hear Nathan's point. So, just because you have the these thoughts pop into your head doesn't mean that you didn't have any control over them. It doesn't mean that you weren't there when the thought popped into your head. You're the one who's choosing to stand there and listen to this person. You're the one who's choosing to watch the show you're watching or eat the food you're eating or whatever. And I am not saying that I was the one who like initiated the thought, but certainly it is within my grasp to wrangle that thought into whatever I want it to be. It's within my grasp to be thinking about something else if I choose to. It's the whole like pink elephant problem, right? Like don't think about a pink elephant. You, it's the first thing you do. You started out by trying to disagree, but then you made the exact same point that he was making. So I'm a little confused. I, I super didn't. Yeah, yeah, you did. But we he didn't, said. We can go ahead. He said. Well, okay. So, so Nathan's saying that we're still in the pilot seat, even with these dispositions, even with these chemicals, that you still have. You're a, you're still an agent. You're still in control. Exactly. You're still right, which is exactly what he was saying. Show. He's saying, look, there's stimuli, there's things that you don't have control over that pop in, and there's thoughts that pop up that you don't have control over. But you're not without control. You just don't have control over that initial stimuli, and you do have control over how you respond to it. So if that's I not have what this, I, that's not what I heard at all. But that's I, what that's. I had like several quotes to try to make that point, and I'm sorry that it didn't come through as clearly okay. as I had hoped. Um, but that's like that's what he's try that's what he's saying is you know you might have this thought about he his example oh he looks kind of like Ben Stiller like you didn't want to think that you didn't initiate that thought that thought arose because of your experiences in life that you've seen these ben stiller movies and you see sam harris who looks kind of like ben stiller and sure. you, your brain just goes oh, they kind of look alike but you didn't go yeah and hmm, i think that's who does fair. this guy look like let me search my memory bank it just happens and that's the whole point that he's trying to make is a lot of this stuff happens organically you don't have control over a lot of the things most of the things that pop into your head but you're not you are still in the driver's seat you then have that choice to say okay yeah kind of but let me push that to the side and listen to what he has to say or just start thinking about lines from zoolander instead you know you have control you just don't have complete control i guess so i would i would like to introduce you guys to a thought experiment that's called the homunculi regression you might be familiar with this already um so th this was not a uh like a very seriously taken scientific thought from um even the first moment that somebody cracked their skull open and you could see that there was a brain inside it was pretty clear that there wasn't a small man piloting people from the inside of their brain um, but for the sake of argument, and just for the sake of uh, 
you know, using a metaphor to explain the way that people act. One of the really old ancient ideas was that um, the way that your brain works is like a tiny little man piloting you from <laughs> the right. inside of your <laughs> inside of your skull. Um, but the immediate problem that you run into with this is if there's a little man that is running you from the inside of your skull, who's running the little man from the inside of his little skull? And it would keep going and going and going. You wouldn't reach an end. So that explanation, even as a metaphor, quickly runs into this problem and loses its uh, ex explaining power. It loses its explanative properties. So just to say that, um, you know, the, the reason that we have free will is because of these actions that are going on inside the brain, um, you're still left with kind of a black box there. Just because you've specified it to be in the brain, which I'm sure is useful, you wouldn't survive for very long without your brain. Um, but we, we don't necessarily know more about it than when we started to just say that it's inside the brain. Does brain. that make sense? Well, and I mean... Also, I think it's important to say that everything that we're talking about, like, <laughs> this is, a lot of these questions are based on the, on obviously, that we don't know the true answer because we can't really know it. We can try to reason our way there, but, like, this is not something that we can measure. This is not something that we can quantify right. and put right. very, you know, and lock down. And, and the the operative the, the the important operative word to insert there is yet um we very well may in a thousand years or something be able to very like to 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 know the answer to these questions um for all we know it's just a matter of technology that's it's that's also possible, possible that's not that's no. not necessarily it's not necessarily the case but yeah i mean that is that is the optimistic right. view i mean sure. so the we're, we're, we're playing a game of speculation here based on our experiences and what we, what we have, what we think to be true. We don't even know if what we think to be true is really true. Again, epistemology. Right. I think we can, I mean, we can pare down the how, like, deeper and deeper and deeper. But, like, the ultimate question is still always going to be a philosophical one. The ultimate question of what consciousness is and who we are ultimately, like... What level uh, do we get down to until we find out who's powering the mech that we walk around in is always going to be a philosophical. Right. Well, see, I don't I don't know that it is always going to be a because I think uh, and this is probably a good place to bring up artificial intelligence. If we can sure. create a mind, a, a, a human, a functioning human mind artificially that that reasons and experiences the same way that we do, then wouldn't that boil down the question to a how as well? Um, how would you how would you test that AI for consciousness? Uh, how do you right. test? I don't know. How do you test us for consciousness? Right. Well, I mean, you could try object permanence, but um, like that doesn't that doesn't tell you necessarily everything that you need to know. Like, all right. So what if what if I propose to you guys that there is this 
completely different um, dimension that doesn't really interact with our world. But this dimension is where minds exist. And so everything that has a mind, you know, this is where the ideas and stuff like, uh, you know, they, they actually interact with each other and bounce off of each other and have physical interaction but you but they don't they don't knock into the matter that's in our normal world but they're but they're real in the sense that there is a place where they exist just somewhere else so you're you're talking about dualism sure well or plato's theory of forms or the right. soul well which is or, kind of the original dualism or dualism. yeah no plato sure. plato so um and plato obviously we all know well maybe we don't um plato <laughs> one of the original dualism right yes so plato being not the original philosopher but certainly um considered one of the founders of Eh, it doesn't matter. He's he's one of the original philosophers, ancient Plato, ancient Greek Plato, um, which is P-L-A-T-O, not P-L-A-Y-D-O. Um, so <laughs> yeah. anyway, uh, he had this idea of the forms that Pat mentioned, which was this concept that what we experience in in our life, what we like when we see a chair, what we're really seeing is like a an imperfect representation of the concept of chair, but the concept of chair exists in a more idealized way. So Plato's analogy here is we, we sort of live in this cave. There's light coming in from outside. And what we experience as say a chair could be represented by say, like the shadow of a chair cast by the light from outside the cave on the back of the cave wall. So we're not really seeing the chair, we're just seeing this this shadow, but in in sort of an idealized form there's this actual chair that exists outside of the cave which is what we're seeing a shadow of. And so to kind of modernize that mind-body dualism is this concept where um the you know the universe is is divided into two opposed or contrasted aspects. There's the things that we experience and there's the true nature of those things. So if I were to ask you, like, one of the classic Plato, Platonic um, dialogues has to do with, you know, what is what is a man? Well, a man ha has two legs and no feathers. Well, I can pluck a chicken and hold it up. And is this a man? Right. That's a paraphrasing of one of the Platonic dialogues. If you describe what it is, um, that doesn't necessarily speak to its true nature. If I asked you to describe a pencil, what is a pencil? Even, no matter how specific you get, there's always some sort of like a question about it. Whereas, um, and that's because we're living in this world of shadows, not in the world of ideals. Right. So, so if I can kind of paraphrase that, like the, the experiences that we have, everything that we experience in consciousness Everything that we see and touch and feel is not exactly how it is. It's our representation of it in our head. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, it's a separation of the mental and the physical. Got it. That's interesting. That's really hard to prove. And, um, like, it's a cool... It's definitely a cool thought experiment. But, like, to, to posit that as a thing that's true, we would really want to, like have a testable 
uh, way to verify it. Yeah, I mean, dualism as a concept, I mean, as much as any of these philosophical concepts can be debunked, which is certainly limited because these are questions for which we don't have the tools to answer. But dualism is pretty well, pretty thoroughly debunked um, as much as it can be. <laughs> Fair enough. But that that's not really that different from most of the stuff we're talking about today. Like, um, I can't even prove that you, Andy, are conscious. You could tell me that you're conscious, and I may or may not believe that. But, like, what's our, what's our litmus test? How are we going to test the the actual veracity of you being conscious is a much more murky right, right. Uh, proposition. So I think I mean so consciousness is sort of re- is is a related. But I, I'm super interested in the the question of like free will versus determinism, and I think in the sense that they shouldn't be seen as diametrically opposed, but rather as two integral aspects of consciousness if that makes sense so like the way i kind of look at it and obviously i am (laughs) i'm just some schmo but the way i look at it is you know we have a certain set of parameters we have our genetics that we were born with but we also have every single minute of experience that we have experienced to date Uh, And that is an ever-growing body of experiences, obviously. Um, And all of these things together, they feed in and create this sort of unique um, person that is you or me. It's not binary. It's not one or the other. Okay. Right. Is the predictability and our strength of being able to predict it and the faded aspect, are those two different things? Could you be fated to do something, but still make meaningful choices along the way? I mean, fated to do something. So, personally, I mean, we're talking about like you know, like Oedipus right. or something, or Macbeth. So, uh, yeah, time traveling and stuff like that. Where like, if you know the outcome, I mean, this is tied in with time traveling. I should say, if you know. The outcome. Can you go back in time and change the outcome by making different decisions? Or would those decisions still find a way to lead to that same inevitable outcome? Right. Well, more more I'm asking, like, we have these predispositions that I can I can make a choice. But does that mean that um, the fact that I made a choice and was an active agent, does that mean that those imagined possibilities, the other paths that I quote-unquote could have taken does that mean that those possibilities were real in any sense and if they weren't real in any sense like are we still talking about me being an agent so on one hand i mean my my punch in the gut first of all is yeah i think you know you can't you have agency you have some level of free will to make choices and those choices matter part of why i believe that is really from a pragmatic standpoint to Nathan's point earlier that if I don't believe that if I believe that my choices don't matter that they were predetermined right what are we even doing here why are we having this conversation what's the point of making decisions if or I'm not making decisions so like what we're just characters in a play at that point like we're not 
we're we're not actually right. like full fledged humans, and so which to me leads to a completely uninteresting and useless conversation. Like, oh, what's the point of the play? Who gives a shit anymore if it's all pre? <laughs> right. I mean, I do go watch movies and go to the theater, but like with an understanding that that work is a work of art created to help me think about my life and help me increase my own subjectivity. Mm-hmm. That's that's my approach from a practical standpoint. I don't see any point in believing in predeterminism. Well, I think that you guys would make very excellent uh, religious <laughs> zealots. Well, thank you. Not so much. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is kind of an <laughs> ironic statement. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess like I I do consider myself. I, I'm definitely part of a religion, but. We we tend to Unitarians tend to like lean pretty hard into eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Unitarianism is barely a religion at all. How dare it's, you? It's more just a collection of people who don't have a religion. <laughs> we we will definitely uh talk about that in our uh religion episode <laughs> that you so mentioned earlier. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's a different Well, world. um if we're if we're drawing to, um, I have a couple of thought experiments yeah. for us to go through. If you guys uh, don't mind, so the first one, uh, this is from Leibniz, and uh, if we could blow up the brain to the size of a mill, if there was some way that we could do that and and walk around. When, when um, you when you mention mill, we you're he like, you just like a factory, you know, something you could like. Yeah, okay. Factory. Oh, I thought you meant yeah. John Stewart. And no. you can Um no, I mean it would be his equivalent of like the a big building. Okay. Yeah. Um a big building and you can walk around inside. Um would you be able to find consciousness somewhere in there? Would you be able to find anything though? <laughs> you know, like I could find synapses. Like hey, look, there's a synapse. But I couldn't necessarily figure out like what it was connected to. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a a sort of a problem of myop being too myopic here, okay. um, where if you zoom in too close, you don't get to see you can't see the big picture. And so I guess I would say probably not. I mean, on the level of like cells and neurons firing and, and electricity passing from synapse to synapse, if you're watching that happen, can you see consciousness happen? I don't know. Probably not. You probably need to zoom out a bit. Right. I mean, mm. one thing I always like, there, there's that thought experiment. We've definitely talked about it before uh, on the train tracks where, yeah, the trolley, you have the trolley, oh, the trolley experiment. Trolley right. Where if you, if you pull the, if you pull the lever, it will divert the trolley off on to uh, another track where one person dies. If you do nothing, it kills five people. And they, they asked somebody that, and they hooked them up to an MRI as they were asking the question. And the thing is, depending on which decision somebody made when when they're experiencing that, like one part of the question or the other, completely different parts of the brain lit up to make the decision. So, I mean, I think they're like, I I would want it to be blown up to the size of a mill <laughs> or a factory or whatever, and. It'd be nice if we could like see visualizations of what parts of the brain were working when you expose that brain to different stimuli. Having said that, 
Also, the answer is still no, is obviously no, because we can't identify, like, if we don't have a definition for what consciousness is, how can you possibly identify it? But, like, it's also completely unbroken for most of our waking lives. Like, for the time that we're asleep, like, yeah, you're you're out. But, um, like, it's it's something that it would be very jarring if it's suddenly switched off. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, but the electrical activity of the brain works kind of differently from that. You've got, like, networks and uh, different, like, associations, uh, like, patterns of neurons that are flashing with electricity or chemistry, like, electrochemical signals. Um, so it's not necessarily, like, that that same, like, constant, unbroken stream and it's kind of weird that like our brains don't really match that subjective experience of like you know i'm definitely conscious right now and i can remember back from when i was a little kid and other than the times i was like asleep or knocked out for surgery or something like you know that was always on it's like it's like a light bulb that was the filament was just always on um but our brains don't necessarily work in that exact same way although you probably wouldn't want your brain to shut off either. So, um, there's, I'm going to bring up, uh, um, Hegel here who I think kind of blends these things pretty well. Like he talks about, um, a, and this can be, uh, this is applied at both like a societal level, but also just a personal level. I think, um, Hegel talks about, um, this process of essentially evolution where you start with like a thesis. And to me, that's sort of the, um, that's your, your starting conditions for any, you know, on a personal level, it's, it's, um, my genetics and my experiences up until this point, right? So far, here's my thesis, right? And then there's an antithesis, which comes in, um, which is obviously antithesis, which um, is sort of uh, the the new stimuli, something a new question, a new whatever um, that that kind of opposes that thesis in some way. Um, it, on a societal level, it's counterculture. You see this from generation to generation all the freaking time. But on a personal level, I think it's a little bit more nuanced. Um, and these two things then merge into a new synthesis, a new being, which then becomes the new thesis which a new antithesis and you know what I mean? So like I have experienced all of this. This is who I am now, but now I'm presented with this new question, this new thing that alters me a little bit. And I have this new, this new me that's a little different from the old me, but it came from the old me. And I love that concept. I mean, Hegel is Hegel, but um, I love that concept personally. And it builds a lot off of, um, Kant's, uh, Immanuel Kant's idea of Ansich is, is in itself, Fursich is, uh, for itself. But these are sort of, it's a, it's a, not a piggyback on Kant. And also, probably most listeners don't know what I'm talking about anymore. So I'm gonna. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So, so the next thought experiment. Um, you've got a brain that's in a jar, and we have an automaton, so a robot that is out in the world. And we're collecting the visual stimulus, 
the taste, the feel, um, all of the, the sound. We're collecting all of the sensory stimulus from this automaton and we're hooking up the movement and the, the body uh, kinesthesia, the body sensing. Um, we're going to hook all that up to the brain that's in a jar. And so the brain that's in a jar, for all intents and purposes, is going to think that it is in the robot. Um, we're going to essentially trick it into thinking it's in the robot or in the jar. Now, where, where is the brain in the jar's consciousness? I mean, my instinct would be that it's in the, the robot, because that is where the sensory input is coming from, and so that's where the experience is located. Huh. I would say the exact opposite, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, it's definitely, uh, like it's I can a, totally it's see like both it, sides, but... Right, exactly. It's not like... There's not necessarily, it's, it's a question where there's not really a right answer necessarily because you could, hmm, you could swap out, you could potentially swap out that body really easily. True. But then I would, personally, I would argue that the consciousness would then go back to the brain and then into the new body whenever you do that. To me, it's, I mean, and again, this is just sort of my approach to it, but your existence is largely or the the location i guess of your consciousness is largely has to do with wh what are you experiencing mm -hmm. what, what is the input the sensory input and where is that coming from but i understand like you know thinking about it how, how are you coming at it like oh the the it's where the the processing happens is that kind of your thinking nathan yeah exactly i i mean the way i see it is the brain is the operator and the body is the tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because arguably, like, all of that input that the body is picking up could just be getting recorded onto a hard drive and, and thrown away. Um, right. But instead, it's going into the brain and that's where something happens to it or where it's made useful. Right. And, and if we cut those two off and we asked where the consciousness was is, like, after cutting it off... Um, I, I still kind of think that it's in the brain, even even if um, now you've cut it off from the world. Um, we were saying earlier, like, you could be blind and deaf and, like, completely cut off of all your senses, but you would still be uh, what we would call conscious. Yeah, I'll, I, I just would say that, like, when you're, once you separate that body from that brain, you're now asking a new question. It's now a different situation and so right. my answer would change yeah. in those circumstances hmm. no i do i do like both of those answers because i think that those are those are both thought-provoking answers i don't think one of you is right right i feel yeah like i am i am perfectly willing to uh be wrong about that you know like sure 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 here's 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 another one that is uh more from like star trek or yeah. sci-fi um if we get technology to teleport someone instantaneously from one place to another, but what we're not going to tell you is what we call quote unquote teleporting is we're going to make an atom for atom perfect copy of you down in the place where we want you to be. And the original, we're just going to, we're just going to kill. <laughs> just going to wipe you out completely. Are you conscious? Is the new copy conscious? So, 
do you in in any meaningful way would you say that your consciousness moves somewhere or are you a brand new well so what you're talking about is actually like there have been fan theories on star trek for a while that every time like uh somebody gets teleported that's exactly what happens their body is destroyed like a computer copy is made and like that new copy is created there's a there's an episode uh, not to get too nerdy, of uh, <laughs> Next Generation, uh, Season 6, Episode 24, called <laughs> Second, Second Chances, where it turns out Riker, years earlier, uh, was teleported off a planet while there was some sort of storm, it doesn't matter, blah, 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 sci- sci-fi bullshit. <laughs> um, and his clone was left down on the planet, and they never went to go, never went to go find it, because they didn't know it was there. <laughs> and so the, the more yeah. moreover like the uh so the episode posits it's been years uh once they find it since uh this uh guy has been left alone and he's a completely different person than normal Riker is or the original Riker but the mm. question is who's the original? They 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 posit this question that like was it the guy down on the planet? Was it the Riker that we've been with for years, who's been the second on the Enterprise? Like who? Like right. there, there are all these questions, and I don't know. and I think one of the other interesting kind of tangential questions to that is, you know, if that were to happen, certainly in science fiction, when you're talking about teleporting, there's a, a pretty clear answer to this question, but I'm. In you know from a philosophical blah 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 from a philosophical no standpoint, I think philosophical is right yeah from a philosoph- <laughs> from a philosophical standpoint it's certainly far from clear whether that clone would retain your memories or the memories of the original you know why would that transfer to to continue down the the fiction path we've got and <laughs> like this episode is just like this is this is definitely going to be a spoiler. So if you haven't seen The Prestige yet, you had like 12 years. Why didn't you watch it? But the thing is, in The Prestige, uh, this is exactly what happens. A copy is made of the magician every time he performs this trick. And at the end of the movie, you go down to the basement of this theater and you find dozens of corpses from every time he's performed this trick in the past where he just kills off the clone if it was in fact the clone, you know, is he, is, is the new person, the, is the new person, the clone or the original? And you, you just don't know. Right. Right. So I would, I would propose that you're not hopping consciousnesses by any means. Like the original definitely doesn't continue in any meaningful way into a new one. But the new ones probably are what you would call conscious. They're just a different, they're a new person, is my contention. My evidence for that, I have none at all. I, there's no reason, but there's no reason to think they aren't as equally conscious as the other one. I want to say the original, but again, who knows which one the original was. You're built out of the same star stuff. When you're teleported, and there's no reason to believe the new one, who has all the same doodads and whatnot, wouldn't have consciousness the same one, the same way the first one would. At that point, you're dealing with issues of like, what has a soul, 
and what doesn't. And like, is, right. is that even like worth asking? Right. I, to take it a step further, I, I think it's an open question whether you would even be able to do that. Like if you could get a atom for atom copy of an, of a person, if you could even breathe life into that. Or, or if you could make that into a conscious being, maybe similar to Frankenstein, you can just shock it and get the Hell ball yeah. rolling and, and yeah. all of the, the synapses firing, um, maybe. But like that's certainly something that's untested. That's something that we have no experience with of turning like completely inorganic material into a brand new person just based on uh you know assembling the molecules in the right, right way. well that that might not that even might be not thing. be possible but um if i remember my middle school science classes correctly they uh, scientists have been able to um re- by by replicating the conditions or what the postulated conditions of of pre-life earth they have been able to create some semblance of life from not life really that's super fascinating i seem to remember and maybe i this i might get blown up in a fact check on this but i seem (laughs) to remember that they did some experiments where they took basically the 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 elements that were posited to exist at the um back way back primordial soup earth right and Mm -hmm. basically electroshock life into it Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. It looks like Andy may have been paying some attention in middle school after all. What he's referring to are the Miller-Urey experiments conducted in 1952 by Stanley Miller and Harold Urey. They combined water, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen in a sealed glass apparatus and subjected it to heat and electricity. They were able to successfully produce five different amino acids. These aren't life, but they are the building blocks of life and proved a basic premise that Darwin and others had proposed. On February 1st, 1871, Darwin wrote to his close friend, the naturalist, Joseph Dalton Hooker, quote, But if, and oh, what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc., present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes at the present day, such matter would instantly be devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before living creatures were formed. In 2007, after Miller's death, some of his students examined sealed vials from the original experiment and were able to identify well over 20 amino acids, more than what's contained in the genetic code. The experiment has been revisited many times over the years, incorporating the latest information on the composition of Earth's atmosphere at the time. There's way more to it, but I think we've reached our maximum level of nerdiness for a fact check. Go check out the sources in the doobly-doo and report your findings back to our Facebook page. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Fact check, fact check, fact check. That is my understanding of how those experiments went. I could be totally way <laughs> off. That, that's totally um, fascinating. <laughs> totally. He, he cried because there are no worlds left to conquer. 
<laughs> I cry for a lot of reasons, actually. Okay, that's um, fine. Aww. Anyway, um, I know that we're kind of up against it, but I think it's worth kind of pointing out. We brought it up earlier, but it sort of got swept under the rug. Um, Are you bringing live... up AI again? No. That's the one I want to talk about again. All right, go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, um, we live in a society that has chosen an answer to this question, at least kind of, mostly. Which And, and the term is liberalism. We've talked about this on our Discord chat. It's like big L liberalism. The idea that you have free will, that you have utility, that you have agency over your decisions. Um, that is the basis of our society because that is the reason, as you kind of talked about there a while ago, we that's why we punish people. We punish someone for murder because the assumption is that they made a choice to murder someone. Right. Not that they were predetermined to. If if we as a society believed truly that predeterminism is incompatibly the the only way, like that is that's the deal. Everything's predetermined. We would have absolutely no. <laughs> I shouldn't use the word cause, but we would have absolutely no cause to <laughs> to punish people for perceived wrongdoing. And this has always been one of my beefs with with. Christianity, I kind of brought it up, but like the whole Judas thing where like, oh, this guy was God told him that he his role, his job on Earth is to turn in Jesus so that he can be sacrificed, blah, blah, blah. And then he gets punished for that. That's some hot load of crap to me that that I mean. Right. If he didn't have a choice, why are you punishing him for it? You're the one who made right. him do it. I don't like. I don't know. I, there's just no better example. I don't. I don't force someone to do something and then punish them for it. That's valid. Um, Nathan, where'd you want to go on AI? We threw it out. So the idea behind AI, I think, is just interesting to talk about. Just just for a minute, because if you create a program that can learn, that can build upon itself, and hell, if you connected it up to some uh, fairly serious 3D printing and things like that. What, at what point does it stop being a program and start having sentience? Like, like having a consciousness? Because there would certainly be a point where it could interact with its outside, with its outside environment, with its surroundings. There's a great um, Futurama quote about that, that when in the episode where he's like the wear car. In this episode, they're in this robot town, and Professor Farnsworth, being the scientist that he is, is talking to a robot who lives there and who who's saying, well, I choose to do this, I choose to do that. And Farnsworth goes, well, no, you're programmed to, to think that. Here, look, here's the circuit board on your inside panel. And the robot goes, I choose to believe what I was programmed to believe. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the thing. Like, but if you if you specifically build a program to learn, to take in to take in outside stimuli, to make new information and to determine new things, how is that different? Like, all it changes is the creator is the is the only thing that changes. And so it, we what we did was we threw it out earlier, just based on like, well, how do you determine what consciousness is? Well, yeah, that's the whole point of the episode like, yeah. and and further could could there come up moral questions of 
is turning a robot off an ethical problem? Mm. Right. Is, is there a silicon heaven for those robots? I feel like there may be like a book or movie about this. Somewhere. Sure, right, definitely. <laughs> or a couple TV shows. Well, yeah, once once you make... Oh, right, it's it's a Bicentennial Man starring Robin Williams. Oh, there it is. Ooh, yeah. Good movie. But yeah, once you once you make a being that has consciousness, is it the same as killing an animal if you if you unplug it, if you say, you know, we're going to shut you down and use you for parts? I would argue, yeah. I would argue artificial intelligence is intelligence. It doesn't have to be organically created to have consciousness, to recognize itself and to and to recognize its environment. Well, that's not very convenient. Um, we have, the answer is not we have, helpful well, <laughs> to, to slaughtering robots. Listen, you can, buy, you can buy a robot that will sense input being crumbs dropped on the ground. It'll leave its little docking port and go clean them up. And go back to its little docking port. A Roomba has some level. Does it sense crumbs, of, or does it is it just on a timer? I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, they have they have sensors. That's fundamentally different. Okay, they they have sensors of some degree. I don't know fully, but that's a question of like what technology is available, not what is consciousness really. I mean, you can. It, there's no reason why you can't elevate. Like we can create optical receptors. We can create um, audio receptors. Uh, uh, olfactory receptors even for robots to be able to sense input in exactly the same way that we do. So if they can receive input and respond to it, isn't that basically consciousness? And Pat brought up the idea of like taking, well, two things. Uh, first of all, Bicentennial Man got 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. So Andy's comment that it was a great movie. <laughs> I, I would have to take umbrage with. But uh, secondly, Rotten Tomatoes can't watch movies; they don't have eyes. <laughs> secondly, <laughs> secondly, Pat brought up the idea that, like, if you took off a robot's arm or something like that, what, like, would that be fair? Would that be a punishment and something like that? And again, I think this depends on what consciousness is. You know, the the consciousness isn't in the arm or the body; it's potentially in the hard drive, I guess, like, or the cloud, or where wherever the programming is stored. We could smash the uh, we could smash the circuit board and use that for parts too, though. Like, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's yeah, a question of whether we can that's harvest moral. a liver from a human. We can harvest even, I mean, hearts and stuff from. I don't know if we can harvest a brain from a human yet, but that again, I think is really more of a question of technology than like consciousness if we can if we can borrow parts from a human to help another human why can't we borrow parts from a machine to help another machine what's the I'm difference i'm gonna conveniently ignore any possibility of the ai being conscious or sentient for the convenience of being able to do with it what i want <laughs> that that is fair and that is why uh skynet will rise up and destroy us all oh geez that's also why people eat factory farmed meat. Fair enough. Yeah, so this recording might be found in like 500,000 years or something, and uh, they'll know why Skynet rose. It was because <laughs> of the choice that I made. Because Pat chose to ignore it. So here's the thing. I think the reason why ultimately 
this will never happen and why I don't think AI can genuinely have any sort of consciousness is because they can't experience precious moments the way us humans do. Ah, got him. Precious moments. I uh, will. I will go ahead and start if you guys don't mind. And I am going to do some cross branding with a previous episode for my precious moment today. Mr. Uh, Steve Hofstetter, uh, you may have heard of him before. Uh, he is a famous comedian, uh, and there's an episode of this very podcast that if you haven't heard it, you should go back and listen to right now. But Steve Hofstetter started a GoFundMe page for um, the Steel City Arts Foundation. And what he wants to do is start, uh, I've heard him refer to it as the Hogwarts of Comedy. So basically, he's he's bought an old church and he wants to turn it into a place where uh, new comedians can come and like learn the craft and there's places for them to live. And uh, he would go ahead and uh, have funding so that way they could come and like eat and live their lives and like live in this place and learn the craft. And the I believe the um, sanctuary of the church is supposed to be turned into a comedy club. So they can have shows right there on the premises and try out their new material for people in the community. It sounds so cool. I love it. So I'm going to include uh, the listing for the GoFundMe in the doobly-doo. And if you have a couple of bucks, go go throw some uh, out there for the Hogwarts of Comedy. Like, I would like to go to the Hogwarts of Comedy. That sounds fun. Leave, leave you guys behind. Stretch my wings. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, I actually was going to say, I think that that's, uh, that might be a fun episode is for us to take a little road trip in like a year or two and go, go interview some people there and talk and like, uh, do I love the about. idea of being able to be in a car with other people. That'd be amazing. <laughs> oh, I, I figured we'd all drive separately. I don't, yeah, I don't want to spend two hours with you guys. Oh wait, we just did. Ah. Got him. Anyway. I got a couple, uh, a couple small precious moments that just have brought delight to my life over the last few weeks. One is uh, I discovered that scientists have finally created a database to determine which animals fart <laughs> and which do not. Man, long time coming. I don't know what I would have done without um, that. Yeah, I mean it's really wait. So there's animals that don't. Yes, apparently. Um, I thought it was like a yeah, normal so like, part of the metabolic process would be like releasing methane. <laughs> so it turns out, like, for example, uh, sea anemones, they burp, but they do not fart. Oh, well, fair Birds, enough. they don't fart. Snakes, maybe. The fun one that I thought was interesting, uh, spiders. They think they might fart, but they don't know really how. It's it's really fascinating, and it's been a long time coming because this world does not have all of the information about farting that we need. I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to say that cows probably fart. I I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and take a bold stance on that. Um, but yeah, we'll make sure. In fact, they do so to a <laughs> destructive. Yeah, we degree. will make sure uh, to <laughs> malicious farting. There's a uh, shared Google spreadsheet that they have of all these animals that we will make sure to include in the doobly-doo. 
my other um my other precious moment is is not really something new but just something that uh, I got a kick out of recently and wanted to share it. Um, it's it's just a video of Deadpool and Spider Man dancing to "Shake It Off," which is by a musical artist known as Taylor Tay-tay. Swift. Right, I've heard of her. Yeah. Um. Apparently, she had, she she. So there's this commercial that I have seen a few times uh, for Capital One where there's he's talking about like, oh, switching to Capital One is as easy as choosing what to wear. And then there's it cuts to this young lady who's who opens a closet and it's just like 18,000 of the exact same sweater. And so she pulls one out. And apparently I did not realize this until very recently. um, But apparently that young lady is Taylor Swift doing a joke about apparently she has a song that has something to do with cardigans. And so this is actually a reference to that. I thought the commercial was funny beforehand. And uh, I just don't do, I I had no idea that that was her because I had no idea what she looks like because I don't care. (laughs) Not anything against her, but like she's a musical artist. I don't care what she looks like. That's not (laughs) relevant. I don't like her music personally either anyway, but that's my own personal thing. That's my own free will acting. Let this be a lesson, American marketers. Uh, have Tchaikovsky pick out a cardigan next time oh. if you want to reach Andy and have him switch over to your bank. Oh, my God. I would absolutely switch bank accounts immediately. So so this is not like a new discovery or anything, um, but something that I've just come across. You guys remember I've uh, expressed my desire for like owning... Uh, the Manal or the Palaces cat. There's another equally cute cat, a less fluffy cat, but uh, a bigger cat that is native to North America, the Bobcat. And Bobcats are very cute. Um, they have like kind of a different meow than like a lot of other bigger cats. They do like almost sort of like a, a, a shriek. Or like a yowl. Uh, could could you go ahead and do your best impression of what that sounds like right now? <laughs> sure. It's kind of like a like a kind of like that. Well, Pat, you did a pretty good job, but here are some actual recordings of Bobcat sounds. Be prepared, listeners. They're kind of weird and freaky. not domesticated um and <laughs> since they're wildlife I, I think why. i think there is there's also like laws and regulations defining like you know how uh in what circumstances people can own them and usually you know you they're they're a wild species you can't have them as pets um but nonetheless i'm gonna try to find a way <laughs> that's another cat that uh, I absolutely would would like to keep. Oh my goodness! Uh, maybe not in the house.
I don't know if I mentioned this before, but like my my dream pet is is a um, a bear. I mean, I'm open minded about what kind of bear. Sure, they're all great. Um, grizzlies and polar bears are kind of big, so um, I'm down. But they they just would require a lot more like space. I'd have to live in the woods. Maybe a black bear a bit. Um, because they're but smaller. A black bear would be a more reasonable size, or a panda bear would be a reasonable size. And I mean, I just I cannot overemphasize how great those cuddles would be. <laughs> I feel like I I <laughs> I understand both of your interests in those, but I feel like the first time that you didn't feed it on time, it would just eat your face. Like <laughs> a bob bobcats can get up to their uh they can get they're up like to 15 or 20 pounds. Yeah, they're pretty uh, large. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, the largest uh, recorded one is 49 pounds, and there are reports <laughs> of ones that get up to 60 pounds, and they can be anywhere from, uh, it looks like, two to four feet tall at the shoulder. So, yeah. Oh, they're but, adorable, though. Yeah, so that just you just bad. You just better hope you get one of the, like, <laughs> foot-tall, 15-pound ones. Well, they're, they're, they're more, to, more to love, you know? Or you just treat it right, and it'll go out and hunt a rabbit instead of eating you. There you go. So that's my precious moment. Just, you know, I want a bobcat. <laughs> All right. Well, or maybe, or no, maybe several it, bobcats. I mean, the, the, the large predatory um, apex predator animals make the best pets. Yes, that's, I think, the general... <laughs> well, may... Uh, maybe that should be my catchphrase. No, no, I think I still need to come up with the catchphrase. Yeah, but but hopefully we gave you something to, to think about with your free will this week. Okay, love you, bye! You were predetermined to love this episode always! Whoa! Bye. But predetermined because we're just that awesome, not because of any sort of metaphysical sense. Uh, no, the metaphysical. Well, the episode may be over, but the fun is just beginning. Find us on your favorite social media platform. We've got the Twitter, the Insta, or our Facebook discussion group, and share your take with us. If you would like to help us grow, it could be as easy as suggesting us to a friend. And if you are interested in supporting us financially for some reason, subscribe to us on Patreon. All the relevant links are in the doobly-doo. And as always, thank you so much for listening in the first place. I will tell you what, pooping without your phone is a very weird experience.